Blog Talk Radio.
of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azitawe. Uh, Today is Saturday, November 20th, uh, 2021. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in uh, once again uh, to another edition of our program. Later on, uh, we'll be coming up uh, with our regular Pan-African Newswire report. Uh, We'll have dispatches on the continuing mobilization in Ethiopia against the United States-supported efforts to remove the government of uh, President Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed. Sudanese uh, are remaining in the streets demanding the removal of the military junta, which staged a coup last month. South African activists are calling for the nation's beauty queen, uh, Miss South Africa, to boycott Miss Universe pageant, 
which is being held in occupied Palestine, the state of Israel. And in the West African state of Burkina Faso, there was a demonstration earlier today which blocked a French military convoy uh, which is operating inside the country. In the second hour, we look back at the assassination of Malcolm X, Hajj Malik al-Shabazz, on February 21st of 1965 in light of the recent exoneration of two men who were falsely accused uh, and spent uh, numerous years in prison for his killing. Finally, uh, we view we review uh, some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day in Africa and around the globe. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. Tuned, and uh, we'll uh, take a musical break with Tommy Allen uh, from the album Black Voices. Let's listen in. <laughs> Oh, 
Oh, <laughs> 
Thank you. 
speak to me.
on its internal affairs, uh, but Ethiopia had to. The list of interventions and hybrid warfare techniques that Western powers are using over Ethiopia continues. The United States imposed restrictions on economic and security assistance provided to Ethiopia over fighting in Tigray. The visa restriction targeted uh, two Ethiopian officials, though. It said those thoughts responsible for the crisis. The Biden administration has also suspended Ethiopia's trade privileges from the Africa Growth and Opportunity Act. The rationale given for this action is to help resolve the Ethiopian conflict but assistant professor of applied economics at Oregon University, uh, Kasun Melis, says the action rather exacerbates the situation at hand. It will weaken the government's capacity and open doors for armed groups such as the deeply unpopular TPLF. He went on to say that such actions, quote, can lead to the collapse of the government, and the collapse of the government can lead to genocide, the disintegration of the country, and mass migration. But it is now hard to say this isn't the intention of Western powers as they have contributed to the fall of Syria, Libya, and others. And you can read uh, this uh, article in its entirety. It is a reprint uh, from the Ethiopian Herald newspaper from earlier today. And uh, another news uh, taking place uh, in uh, the neighboring Sudan, Republic of Sudan, in the north of the country. The, um, according to Al Arabiya television correspondent in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, Khartoum, uh, the Republic of Sudan, requested to postpone the arrival of the African Union Special Envoy, Mohamed Al Hassan Labat, uh, who was supposed to arrive two days ago. A diplomatic source told the TV channel that the military component temporarily canceled the visit, uh, saying that, quote, Sudan is able to solve its own problems. End quote. The military leaders have considered, quote, the mediation of the African Union as ineffective after freezing Sudan's membership on October 27th, just two days after the military coup d'etat. On November 12th, the uh, chairperson of the African Union Commission announced that he was about to send an envoy to Sudan at the request of the African Peace and Security Council to mediate between uh, the Sudanese parties. In Khartoum, uh, there were rumors about the lifting of house arrest orders against Prime Minister Abdallah Hamdak and the release of his political advisor and the SPLM North Deputy Chairman Yasser Arman and Sudanese Congress Party Chairman Omar El Deguer. Malik Agar, the SPLM N leader, had announced on November the 16th that all the detainees would be released within two days. You're listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal. I am your host, uh, Abayomi Zikawe. And in the uh, Republic of South Africa, uh, there is a raging debate uh, that is taking place around participation in the Miss Universe pageant uh, that is going on in occupied Palestine. Now, on yesterday, protesters rallied outside the Miss South Africa offices in Johannesburg to call on the current title holder to boycott the upcoming Miss Universe contest. Members of various political parties and Palestine solidarity organizations were demonstrating against the pageant, which is set to be held in Israel in December. Marla Mandela, uh, Nelson Mandela's grandson and a member of the South African parliament, 
compare the Israeli occupation to South Africa's history as an apartheid state. The current Miss South Africa, Lalela Mswani, appears to be caught in an uncomfortable spot because of the furor. So far, Mswani, a 24-year-old law graduate who won the South Africa contest last month, has remained silent on whether or not she will participate in the pageant in Israel. The government announced this week that it has withdrawn its backing after it failed to persuade the Miss South Africa pageant organizers to pull out of the event to protest Israel's policies towards the Palestinians. And finally, in the West African state of Burkina Faso, thousands of people demonstrated yesterday in Kaya, the capital of Burkina Faso's north-central region, to oppose the passage of a large French army logistics convoy and transit to neighboring Niger. That's according to organizers and residents. People chanted, French army, get out, free the Sahel, no more French invasion and recolonization military convoy. These signs could be read and banners uh, were held uh, by demonstrators who gathered at the entrance of Kaya, according to photos and videos that have been authenticated by the international press. Uh, With their fist in the air, the demonstrators sang the national anthem in front of the French convoy of several dozen vehicles that were still blocked in Kaya on Friday afternoon. That's according to demonstrators. Coming from Cote d'Ivoire and bound for Niger, the convoy's advance had already been blocked Wednesday and Thursday by demonstrators in Bobo Jalasso in the west. Then in the capital of Ouagadougou, uh, where Burkinabi security forces had to use tear gas to disperse the demonstrators, according to Roland Bayala, who is the spokesman uh, for the Coalition of African Patriots of Burkina Faso, Copa BF, which called for the uh, demonstrations. Uh, we were demonstrating against insecurity when we learned that the Cote d'Ivoire government, a convoy of the French army, was to cross Burkina Faso to Niger. Now, that's what he said. Then we decided to blockade uh, because despite the agreement uh, signed with France, we continue to record deaths and our countries remain underarmed. They went on to say that um, he had called on people who are on the route of this convoy to mobilize to oppose this passage. On Tuesday, several hundred people uh, took part in demonstrations in several cities of the country to demand the resignation of Burkinabi President Rosh Mark Christian Kobori for his inability to stop terrorist attacks. Two days after a jihadist attack that killed at least 53 people, including 49 Jadams in Inata, which is in the north of Burkina Faso, The country has faced regular and deadly jihadist attacks uh, since 2015, particularly in the northern and eastern regions in the so-called three borders area, bordering Mali and Niger, two countries also facing operations uh, by armed jihadists. The violence sometimes mixed with intercommunal classes has killed an estimated 2,000 people and forced 1.4 million people to flee their homes. With that, uh, we're going to conclude uh, this uh, Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. In concluding this segment, we'd like to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998, and since that time, 
The agency has published thousands upon thousands of articles and dispatches in various newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to uh, the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, uh, just go uh, to our website, and uh, that is at uh, panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And uh, if you'd like to uh, have access to today's Pan-African Journal, a worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Saturday, uh, November 20th, uh, 2021, all you need to do uh, is go uh, to the Pan-African Radio Networks. And uh, that is at Blog Talk Radio forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. And log on to the uh, Pan-African Radio Network. Uh, Not only can you have access to today's program uh, for Saturday, November 20th, uh, 2021, uh, you can also um, have access to well over 1,000 other archived editions of uh, the Pan-African Journal, uh, Dating Black uh, 2, many, many years ago. And uh, these programs can be shared with other potential listeners by merely copying and pasting the links into emails and forwarding those emails to other potential listeners. The links can be copied and pasted into blogs and websites. And the links can also be shared through social media networks such as Facebook and Twitter, among others. This is Abayomi Azikwe. Uh, We'll take a break and uh, we'll be back with more of our program for this week.
Welcome back, and uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal Worldwide uh, Radio Broadcast. I am your host, uh, Abayomi Zikaway, and that was Detroit's own Anita Baker with the song entitled No One to Blame. And, uh, of course, all this week uh, there's been discussion uh, some 56 years or more later, soon to be 57 years later, of the assassination and the conspiracy surrounding the assassination of Malcolm X, uh, Malik uh, El-Shabazz, Hajj uh, Malik El-Shabazz. And, of course, um, Malcolm X was assassinated on Sunday, uh, February 21st of 1965 at the Audubon Barroom, uh, located in the Washington Heights uh, section of uh, Upper Manhattan in New York City. And, uh, of course, uh, since that time period, uh, many have not accepted uh, many of the official accounts of what happened. Uh, And, of course, oftentimes uh, people have deliberately uh, concealed the role of the United States government in the conspiracy and the assassination. Of course, uh, just this last past week, um, the New York Prosecutor's Office, uh, along with the courts, um, exonerated uh, two of the people who were charged and convicted in the assassination of Malcolm X. Uh, one, uh, Talmadge Hare, uh, did confess at the trial in 1966 and had subsequent to that uh, given up the names of the other people that he was involved in the uh, assassination with. Uh, however, the two other people he had contended, even in the 1966 trial, that they were not guilty. Uh, but he refused in the 1966 trial to give up the names of the other people involved. Of course, uh, this has uh, dominated the news, and of course there was uh, other discussion about a recent documentary that was done on Netflix, uh, re-examining the uh, assassination of Malcolm X, which has been examined and re-examined going back to 1965. uh, Articles were written raising questions about various aspects of the official story, the role of the New York City police, the FBI, the Central Intelligence Agency, uh, the Nation of Islam, among others. So we're going to go back and listen uh, to uh, a classic uh, examination on the assassination of Malcolm X entitled Who Killed Malcolm? This is from 1972 uh, from the nationally syndicated uh, program, Uh, black journal uh, that was led at the time by Tony Brown, uh, who had been in Detroit, um, was from Detroit, attended Wayne State University. Of course, uh, this is a very interesting examination in 1972, uh, even prior uh, to the subsequent uh, release of FBI documents and other classified information related to the uh, case of Malcolm X. His assassination. Uh, let's listen in to Black Journal from 1972. The following program is from NET. He stood there, alone on the stage, with one hand up in the air and he was a perfect target. And a man, police say he was Thomas Hagen, ran down the aisle with a shotgun, and the ones with him were already shooting. When the shotgun was right in front of Malcolm X, 
and both barrels raked him. Malcolm went straight back, and the sound of his head slamming onto the wooden floor was mixed with the screams, and he lay on his back on the stage of an old ballroom. Seven years since Malcolm X was assassinated on a bare stage in New York's Audubon Ballroom in front of 400 witnesses. Shortly afterwards, three men were brought to trial and found guilty of the murder. But circumstances surrounding the trial, the assassination itself, accounts in the press, and subsequent actions were so peculiar that seven years hence, the question of who killed Malcolm is still with us, although three men have been convicted of his murder. We must ask the larger question, why was he murdered? What power structure felt so threatened by the words of this one man? There were at different times in his life, three Malcolms living under separate names and philosophies, Malcolm Little, Malcolm X, and El-Haj Malik El-Shabazz. To fully understand the threat that Malcolm posed, one must understand his evolution. He was born Malcolm Little in Omaha, Nebraska, May 19, 1925, the seventh of nine children. His father, a staunch follower of Marcus Garvey, was found dead. Allegedly, he was killed because of his involvement in black nationalism. Malcolm was six years old. At age 15, after completing the eighth grade, Malcolm quit school and moved to Boston to live with an older sister. He eventually made his way to New York, where he was known as Big Red, and worked as a pimp, waiter, numbers man, and dope peddler. In 1946, when he was 20 years old, he was arrested and sentenced to 10 years imprisonment for armed robbery. While in prison, he was converted into the Muslim religion and became Malcolm X. When paroled in 1952, after serving six years, he was a devout follower of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad. His first assignment was to set up a Muslim mosque in Detroit. In 1953, Malcolm went to Chicago to live and be trained by Mr. Muhammad himself. A year later, he was sent to Harlem to establish Mosque Number 7. An excellent debater and orator, Malcolm X became the verbal whip of Mr. Muhammad and the Muslims. Well, sir, if we have sat around here for the past hundred years begging all of the white political hypocrites and every president that has taken office for some kind of freedom or some kind of justice and some kind of equality, and we uh, today yet don't have it, then I think you can easily see that the Honorable Elijah Muhammad is right when he says that the only way the black man can be free is when he has a land of his own and a government of his own and an economy of his own and industry of his own so he can do the things for himself that he now is waiting and begging the white man to do for him and never gets done. No matter what happens, we don't teach you to turn the other cheek. 
We don't teach you to turn the other cheek in the south, and we don't teach you to turn the other cheek in the north. We teach you to obey the law. We teach you to carry yourselves in, in a respectable way. But at the same time, we teach you that anyone who puts his hand on you, do your best to see that he doesn't put it on anybody else. You don't have any boats or airplanes bringing drugs into this country. The white man brings it in. The white man brings it to Harlem. The white man makes you a drug addict. The white man then puts you in jail when he catches you using drugs. Who is it that controls the prostitution in Harlem? It's the white man. Who controls the large sale of whiskey and wine? It's the white man. You don't have any distillery. You don't own Shenley's. You don't own uh, Old Overholt or Seagram's. You don't put the seal on that bottle of whiskey. It's the white man. Who gives you the deck of cards and the dice that you use to gamble with? It's the white man. And after he sell them to you, he catch you with them and push you in jail for using them. Malcolm warned against the drug threat long before it had become a popular issue. Because he preached separatism at a time when most blacks pursued integration, Malcolm was not fully appreciated by most blacks during his lifetime. He was often branded a, quote, radical militant because of his outspoken attitude toward whites. When the Honorable Elijah Muhammad finishes opening your and my eyes and making it possible for us to see this white man like he really is, he don't have to worry about us integrating with him. We don't want to be around that old pale thing. We don't want to be around that old pale thing. We don't want to integrate with that old pale thing. We don't want to sleep next to that old pale thing. No, we can do without it. You find that old pale thing, lean out in the sun, trying to get to look like you. That old pale thing. Find him using man pants, trying to look like you. That old tail thing, that old sickly looking thing. And today we see him like he is. There was a time when we used to drool in the mouth over white people. We thought they were pretty because we were blind. We were dumb. We couldn't see them as they are. But since the Honorable Elijah Muhammad has come and taught us the religion of Islam, which has cleaned us up and made us so we can see for ourselves, now we can see that old pale thing to look exactly as he looked. Nothing but an old pale thing. On December 1st, 1963, at a public rally in New York City, when asked what he thought of President Kennedy's assassination, Malcolm called it a case of, quote, the chickens coming home to roost which was construed generally as meaning he was happy Kennedy was dead. Two days later, the press reported a 90-day suspension of Malcolm X by Elijah Muhammad for the comment. Uh, Malcolm, uh, is there really a split between yourself and your former leader, Muhammad? No, I, I wouldn't call it a split. Uh, I'm, uh, everything I know, I was taught by the Honorable Elijah Muhammad. Whatever I speak, I'm speaking that which he has taught me. Mm -hmm. And whatever position I've attained, as a Muslim, I've attained it through his guidance and through his help. 
but during the 90 days that I've been silent, I have come to the conclusion that uh, I can best help spread the solution that the, and the diagnosis that the Honorable Elijah Muhammad gives of the so-called Negro problem in this country by continuing to remain out of the Nation of Islam and working on my own without restriction in the way that I think I best know how. In mid-December 1963, the suspension of Malcolm X was extended indefinitely. On March 12, 1964, after 10 years with the Nation of Islam, Malcolm X called a press conference announcing his break with the organization and the formation of a new group, the Muslim Mosque, which became the religious body and later the Organization of Afro-American Unity, the political body which leaned toward black nationalism. That we will do everything within our power to bring about the complete control, political control, of Negroes over their own community, over the politics of their own community. And our economic uh, philosophy, which is also black nationalism, is designed, to sh is designed to show Negroes the importance of controlling their own economy. When Negroes are re-educated into the knowledge of, of how to set up businesses and establish uh, uh, factories, they can create their own employment, and then they won't be running downtown trying to boycott the white man or sit in at the white man's door or force him to give them a job. We want to try and show the Negro in the, with the economic philosophy of black nationalism that he can uh, house himself, clothe himself, feed himself, and do something for himself. And the social uh, philosophy of black nationalism is uh, to teach, re again, it involves the re-education of Negroes. I hope I'm not talking too fast for you, <laughs> but I can't help it. Uh, the social uh, philo philosophy of black nationalism is to show the Negro how to ha take some pride in his own society, how instead of trying to force himself into the white society, how to elevate the, the uh, uh, how to elevate his own society and get some racial pride, racial dignity, so that he'll be socially acceptable to himself in his own society, and then perhaps he can get along better with other people in other societies. Make the city or state or government which takes our tax dollars uh, channel some of these dollars right back into the Negro community and establish better schools in the Negro community with better teachers, with better uh, curriculum, and one of the most important ingredients in that curriculum must uh, be the culture, the lost culture of the Negro. So some effort must be made to restore the cultural roots of the Negro in the school system where Negroes attend. You seem to have had a change of heart in your attitude toward Negro leaders in the Civil Rights Movement. What position are you taking now? Well, uh, I think that the problem itself is so big that all of the so-called Negro leaders should try some way to forget our differences. I'm willing to forget anything that any Negro leader has ever said bad about me. And as I said earlier, I am praying that they will also uh, be able to forget the many bad things that I've said about them. So we can sit down and try and find some common approach that can be used to solve this problem that's of uh, common and mutual benefit to all of us. After his break with the Muslims, Malcolm broadened his scope to include the international scene. And it was at this point that his life was threatened. In April 1964, Malcolm made a pilgrimage to Mecca. Here, at 39 years old, he received the name El-Hajj Malik El-Shabazz, the honorary Hajj being given to all who visit that Muslim holy city. From Mecca, he journeyed to Nigeria, Ghana, Morocco, and Algeria, finally returning to the United States, May 21, 1964. 
Malcolm wanted to galvanize public opinion against the United States for its oppression of black Americans and to get African support in bringing the American racial question before the United Nations. To do this, he needed the support of independent African states. And so in the summer of 1964, Malcolm returned to Africa for a four-month tour of 14 countries. In his autobiography, Malcolm notes that he was followed throughout Africa by persons from an unknown source. One of them was described as, quote, a thin-lipped, olive-skinned man. On July 23, 1964, Malcolm was in Cairo, Egypt, to deliver a scathing attack of Washington's domestic and foreign policies in an address before the African Summit Conference when he collapsed in his hotel room with severe abdominal pains. According to Eric Norden, in an article, The Murder of Malcolm X, Malcolm was rushed to a Cairo hospital, suffering from toxic poisoning, and had to have his stomach pumped. Malcolm later said he had been deliberately poisoned. Throughout the fall of 1964, Malcolm worked primarily on his plan to indict America in the United Nations. According to Eric Norden's information, Malcolm had been under surveillance since he broke with the Muslims, but now there were as many as, quote, three different agents shadowing him at one time. In early February 1965, Malcolm flew to London to address the Council of African Organizations. From there, he was scheduled to fly to Paris to deliver another speech. However, on February 9th, when his plane landed in France, he was told by agents of the French government not to deplane, and he was ordered to leave the country immediately. Later, Malcolm was to say, according to Eric Norden, after an interview with Malcolm's sister, that his being barred from France led him to believe that the plotters of his death were much bigger than the Muslims. On Saturday, February 12th, Malcolm returned to the United States by route of London. Ten hours later, at 2.45 Sunday morning, the home in which Malcolm, his wife Betty Shabazz, and their four children lived was firebombed. The house was severely damaged, although Malcolm and his family amazingly escaped unharmed. In an article entitled, The Last Days of Malcolm X, Earl Grant said, quote, Evidently, there were several degenerate persons involved in this cowardly attack. The one in the rear had lost control of his flaming bottle and dropped it. Had this bottle been thrown into the house, Malcolm and his family would have been trapped. On February 20th, he called a business meeting of his new group, the Organization of Afro-American Unity. That night, Malcolm stayed alone in a 12th floor room at the New York Hilton Hotel on 53rd Street and 6th Avenue. His family had been put up by friends in Queens, New York. A man later identified as Thomas Hagen, one of Malcolm's assassins, would be identified by a Hilton Hotel house detective as one of three black men asking questions about the location of Malcolm's room the night before his death. The next morning, Sunday, February 21st, the day of his murder, Malcolm left his 12th floor hotel room, got into his Blue Oldsmobile, and finally parked his car a number of blocks from the Audubon Ballroom, where his organization's meeting was to take place. He entered the main ballroom about 2.30 p.m., Shortly after 3 p.m., approximately 400 people had crowded into the ballroom, sitting on folding wooden chairs. One of Malcolm's aides introduced him. The New York Herald Tribune, February 22, 1965, reconstructed what happened from eyewitness accounts. The applause stopped, and the people sat down, and Malcolm's goateed face looked up, and he said, Assalamu alaikum. And the crowd murmured its response of, Peace be with you also. And then the two leadoff men made their move. They were in a middle row, and they stood up and started pushing each other. And one of them was saying, 
Get your hands out of my pocket. Stop messing with my pocket. Malcolm's bodyguards started to move towards them to break it up. And up on the stage, Malcolm stepped out from behind the lectern, and he was saying, Now, brother, break it up. Let's cool it. He stood there, alone on the stage, with one hand up in the air, and he was a perfect target. And a man, police say he was Thomas Hagen, ran down the aisle with a shotgun, and the ones with him were already shooting. When the shotgun was right in front of Malcolm X, and both barrels raked him. Malcolm went straight back, and the sound of his head slamming onto the wooden floor was mixed with the screams, and he lay on his back on the stage of an old ballroom. Peter Bailey, an associate editor of Ebony Magazine, was a member of the OAAU and worked closely with Malcolm X. He was at the Autobahn the day of the shooting. That same day, he wrote his immediate reactions to what took place. I was in the rear of the ballroom, sitting and waiting at the entrance for the speakers who were expected. After hearing four shots, I ran into the main ballroom, looked up front, and saw nothing but confusion. The place sounded like a battlefield. I then dashed back out with a group of people running towards me and ducked into the bathroom at the side to avoid the shots. Immediately after hearing the last shot, I ran out of the bathroom and down the center of the totally wrecked hall to the stage. Jumping onto the stage, I saw Brother Malcolm's lying on the stage floor with bullet holes all over his chest. I leaned over him and saw that his skin was already getting that deathly look. There were several people administering to him when I got to the stage. I went into the room where others were holding his wife. I said that someone had gone for the doctor, not knowing whether this was true or not. I then jumped from the stage and started to the rear of the hall to see if the doctor was on the way. It was almost three quarters of the way down the hall that I saw the first two cops that I had seen, and those two were just casually walking through the hall as though they were on a Sunday stroll. This despite the fact that people were still screaming, crying, and the place looked like a battlefield. Several questions arise from press accounts of what happened that day. In all three New York morning papers, descriptions were given of the capture of two suspects at the Audubon Ballroom immediately after the murder. In later editions of the same papers, and from then on, only one suspect was said to have been captured at the scene by police. And the press never questioned this. An early edition of the New York Times dated February 22, 1965, in an article headlined, Malcolm X shot to death at rally here, said, quote, the police indicated two suspects were being questioned, end quote. One of those suspects was identified as Thomas Hagen. In a later paragraph, the capture of the second suspect was described, quote, Patrolman Thomas Hoy, 22, said he had been stationed outside the 166th Street entrance when, quote, I heard the shooting and the place exploded. He rushed in, saw Malcolm lying on the stage, and, quote, grabbed a suspect who he said some people were chasing. As I brought him to the front of the ballroom, 
The crowd began beating me, and the suspect, Patrolman Hoy, said. He said he put this man, not otherwise identified later for newsmen, into a police car to be taken to the Wadsworth Avenue station. A late city edition of the same paper only indicated one person, Thomas Hagen, was captured at the scene. There is no further mention of a second suspect from then on. All early edition February 22nd newspapers were actually on the newsstands the night of February 21st, which is the date of the assassination. In the February 22nd early edition of the New York Daily News, the same thing happened. Quote, two men, one the reputed assassin, were taken by police from the hands of a howling mob of Malcolm's followers. Both men were spirited away by the police. Again, later editions made no further mention of a second man. Because of the mystery surrounding the second suspect, several independent writers and lesser-known publications have wondered if he could have been a police agent, and several other questions follow. What was the other man arrested by Patrolman Hoy doing to make the crowd think him a suspect? The police never explained why they didn't release this suspect's name as they did with Thomas Hagen's. He was described by eyewitnesses at the Audubon Ballroom as a, quote, tight-lipped, olive-skinned man with slanted eyes. The same description was used by Malcolm for a man he said followed him throughout Africa and Europe. One of the most curious aspects of the events surrounding Malcolm's assassination has to do with Gene Roberts, an undercover policeman who infiltrated Malcolm's organization, shown here administering mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation to Malcolm as he lay on the Audubon stage. The Muslims claim Roberts had defected from them with Malcolm the year before. He finally surfaced as an undercover police agent at the New York trial of the Panther 13. According to the New York Times of December 8, 1970, Roberts was assigned to undercover work when he became a policeman in 1965, the year that Malcolm was killed, and did not reveal himself until his Panther 13 grand jury testimony on April 1, 1969. The Times says, quote, Detective Gene Roberts said he had been assigned to infiltrate the organization of Malcolm X and was on duty as the black leader's bodyguard the afternoon he was killed on the stage. It is a frequent practice of white journalism for the press to convict blacks suspected or charged with crimes. Nowhere is the example of this practice more blatant than in the case of Malcolm's death. Immediately after the assassination, both the police and press were quick to blame the Muslims for the assassination of Malcolm X. A quote from Time magazine, March 5, 1965. Malcolm's murder, almost certainly at the hands of the black Muslims, from whom he had defected, came on a bright Sunday afternoon. The New York Times of February 22, 1965, in an article by Peter Kish said, quote, about two hours later, the police said the shooting had apparently been the result of a feud between followers of Malcolm and members of the extremist group he broke up with last year, the black Muslims. Besides Thomas Hagen, the one suspect police admitted holding, two others were later arrested, Norman Butler on February 26th and Thomas Johnson on March 3, 1965. Both Butler and Johnson were well-known Muslims who were out on bail on an assault charge at the time of Malcolm's murder. Neither was arrested at the scene. During the last days of the trial, the other suspect, Thomas Hagen, confessed to murdering Malcolm X, but said it was others, not Butler and Johnson, who aided him in the assassination. All three were subsequently found guilty and sentenced to life in prison. 
The court transcript of the trial reads, Thomas Hagen. I know that they, Butler and Johnson, didn't have anything to do with the crime that was committed at the Audubon Ballroom February 21st, that I did take part in it, and that I know for a fact that they weren't there, and that I wanted to tell this to the jury, this to be known to the jury, the court and the judge. I want to tell the truth. Assistant District Attorney Dermody. Will you tell us what the plan was, how the assassination was to take place? Hagen. Four people, two people sitting in the front row, man with the shotgun, short dark man with the beard sitting around the fourth row from the front, man in the back. One man starts commotion, says, get your hand out of my pocket. Guards from the stage goes after this man. Man with the shotgun shoots Malcolm. Two men on the front row shoot pistols. D.A. And which of these men were you? Hagen. One of the men sitting on the front row. Later in the court transcript, D.A. Do you know the names of these four people? Hagen. I do. D.A. Give us the names of these four people that you say you know were involved with you. Hagen. I will not. D.A. You testified a few moments ago that you were told to do this by somebody. Is that right? Hagen. I was offered some money for doing it from people that probably would have been revealed if Mr. Williams... One of the defense attorneys... ...could have continued his interrogation. D.A. I ask that that be stricken as not responsive. The judge. Strike it out. Although Hagen testified that three others than himself were involved, only two others than himself were convicted neither of whom was involved in the murder, according to Hagen. According to the court transcript, no further efforts were made in the trial by the defense attorneys or the prosecution to discover the identity of the person or persons who hired Hagen and his confederates. Who actually ordered the killing of Malcolm? There has been much speculation. Although two of the men convicted of Malcolm's death were Muslims, and one, Thomas Hagen, rumored to be a Muslim, there has never been any formal evidence that his death was an official plot of the Nation of Islam, nor that these men convicted were acting under orders of black Muslim officials. The New York Times, dated February 23, 1965, reported that Elijah Muhammad denied that the black Muslim movement had anything to do with the slaying of Malcolm X. James Farmer, former director of Corps, felt Malcolm X was killed because of his crusade against drugs. Author Eric Norden notes that if the Muslims had their reasons for wanting Malcolm dead, so did others. Novelist Jay Kennedy also said it was because of drugs, but specifically named Red China as the force behind the assassin. Malcolm's sister, Ella Collins, said that his death was planned even before he was refused entry into France by the Western power structure. It has been seven years since the assassination of El-Haj Malik El-Shabazz, but there are still numerous questions left unanswered and many ends left dangling.
Welcome back. Welcome back. Uh, that was a archival piece uh, from 1972. Uh, Tony Brown, uh, the broadcast journalist, and of course uh, he was the host at the time of uh, the nationally syndicated program Black Journal. And uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, the worldwide radio broadcast, and we're reflecting on uh, some of the developments uh, just this last past week uh, where two of the people who were convicted in the assassination of Malcolm X uh, who had maintained their innocence uh, even after uh, they were arrested in 1965 and convicted in 1966 have been exonerated. Um, the one person who did confess, uh, Thomas Hagen or Talmadge Hare, uh, testified during the trial that uh, neither one of the other two, uh, Thomas Butler and uh, Johnson, uh, were involved, that there were other people involved. Uh, he would not give up the names in the trial, but years later, possibly a decade and a half later, he did give up the names of the other individuals who were involved in the actual assassination of uh, Malcolm X. And um, we want to listen to as well another rare archival uh, audio file of uh, one of the last uh, public speeches delivered by Malcolm X. This was on the evening of February 15th, 1965, which was on a Monday at the Audubon Barroom. Uh, the day before, Malcolm had uh, spoken in the city of Detroit at Ford Auditorium. Uh, the day prior to that, uh, in fact, the early morning hours of um, February uh, the 13th, uh, Malcolm's home was bombed in uh, New York City. And, of course, uh, later that day, he flew uh, to Detroit. And, uh, of course, uh, he uh, delivered a speech at uh, Ford Auditorium. He stayed overnight in the city and returned uh, that morning, uh, which would have been February the 15th, uh, to uh, New York City, uh, where he addressed uh, several hundred uh, the Audubon Ballroom that evening and also held a press conference uh, in regard uh, to uh, the bombing of his home, uh, his disagreements and uh, public uh, conflict with the Nation of Islam, also his views on um, the international situation, the domestic situation uh, in the United States. Let's listen in to this uh, address and press conference from February the 15th of 1965 featuring uh, Malcolm X uh, at the Audubon Ballroom. This is just uh, five days, uh, six days uh, before his assassination. If my babies are not safe, you're Because of events be out of our control. As many of you know, uh, last Sunday morning, about 3 o'clock, somebody threw some bombs inside my house. Normally, I wouldn't get excited over a few bombs, but the ones who threw these not only aimed them in rooms where there, where there was no one, but aimed them in rooms where three of my daughters sleep. One daughter six, one daughter four, and one daughter two. And since I am quite certain 
that those who threw the bombs knew my house well enough to know where everyone was sleeping. I can't quite bring my heart to the point where it can in any way be merciful or from now on compromising toward anyone who can be that low. Especially when I heard on the news today that Joseph, a brother that I found in the garbage can in Detroit in 1952, well, that's where I found him, uh, made the statement that uh, I had bombed my own house. Now, you see, this doesn't surprise me because I know that since many of us left the Muslim movement, its intelligence and its morals have gone bankrupt. Both its intelligence and its morals have gone bankrupt. And now they are using the same tactic that's used by the Ku Klux Klan. When the Klan bombs your church, they say you did it. When they bomb the synagogue, they say the Jews bombed their own synagogue. This is the Klan tactic. And tonight, I'll tell you why the black Muslim movement is now adopting the same tactics against black people as has been up to now the exclusive method of the Ku Klux Klan. I want to point out, too, that I'm not talking about Muslims just to make white people happy because I don't believe in letting anyone use me against somebody else. I'm telling you these things because it has reached a point where I feel that black people in this country need to know what's going on. And I'm talking about an organization which I had a hand in building, which I had a hand in organizing. I know its characteristics. I know its potential. I know its behavior pattern. I know what it can do and what it cannot do. And one of the things it can do is bomb your house and try and kill your baby. Before we get into it, I would like to point out also, as many of you know, uh, last Tuesday or last weekend, I was invited to address the first Congress of the Council of African Organizations in London. They had a four-day Congress from the 5th, 6th, 7th, and 8th and had, had invited me there to make the closing address and bring the delegates from the various African organizations that are situated on the European continent up to date in regards to the struggle of the black man in this country in his quest for human rights and human dignity. And in conjunction with that inv invitation, I had gotten an invitation to visit Paris from the Afro-American community in Paris which was sponsoring a rally in conjunction with the African community. And I was supposed to go there Tuesday also and address them and let them know the state of development or lack of development of our progress in this country for human rights or toward human rights. As many of you know, when I got to Paris, the man said I couldn't come in. Some man, French man. Uh, they gave me no explanation other than to say, 
we have our orders. They wouldn't let me phone the American Embassy, and they tried to imply that the American Embassy was behind it, which I told them that I didn't know de Gaulle had become a satellite of Lyndon B. Johnson. I knew that Kennedy had made a satellite out of Khrushchev and, half the, and Britain and half of these other countries, but I didn't think that France was a satellite of the United States. Well, this made them angry because they like to be independent, you know, or pretend to be independent. But they wouldn't let me in. They wouldn't let me phone the American embassy. And later on, when I got back in London, and by the way, when I got back to London, there was about 20 different delegates. There were delegates from about 20 different African organizations on hand at the airport, and they were going to raise hell if anything had happened other than what should have happened. As it was, I entered back, uh, I re-entered England with no trouble and immediately got in telephone contact with the brothers and sisters who were in Paris by telephone. And they pointed out that they had encountered some difficulty, first from the communist trade union workers, mind you, communist trade union workers had uh, prevented them from renting their hall, and when they, when they went to get another hall, the same uh, communist group had exercised its influence to prevent them from getting that hall. And finally, when they did get a hall, evidently someone was strong enough to exercise influence over the French government. And I might add that while I was in custody of the French, uh, every time I made a request before they would say yes or no, they telephoned the French foreign ministry so that they were taking their orders from someone as high up in the French foreign ministry who did not want me to enter France. And there's a reason for it. I don't blame them. Uh, and because, uh, and I told them while I was there that maybe my plane got mixed up I, and I was in South Africa in the wrong country. Uh, I told them this couldn't be pa Paris, it must be Johannesburg. And they got red. And you know how they can get red. One of them was pink. <laughs> the same thing happened in England, as many of you probably read in the Sunday Times and, and Tribune. Uh, there was a great fear in England uh, concerning me speaking to the West Indian community. And because this is because England has a very serious tr uh, color problem developing because so many of our people are migrating there from the British West Indies. France, quietly as it is kept, has a very serious color problem developing because of the migration to France of our people from the French West Indies. And with these people from the French West Indies, black people going to France, others from the British West Indies going to England, coupled with the Asians who are coming from the Commonwealth territories along with the Africans, from French Equatorial West Africa formerly into France and the British possessions into Britain. There's a large increasing number of dark-skinned people uh, swelling the, pop the dark population of France and Britain and it's, it's giving them a great deal of cause for worry. The only difference over there and over here being that no one of black skin in France has ever tried to unite the dark-skinned people together Neither have they done so in England. So you can somewhat see what their fear is. No effort has been made to unite the Afro-American community or the American Negro community with the uh, West Indian community and then those two communities with the African community. 
and those communities with the Asian community. This has never been done in either England or France. But when I was in uh, France, in the, in, in to come to Alabama and organize the black people of, of, of Alabama and pull the sheep off the plan ourselves. And we can do it. Brothers and sisters, we can do it. And the federal government won't do it. And since then, they've been talking about a little investigation of the Klan and the, and the Citizens Council and the Black Muslims and some of the others. But they're not going to do anything. The only way the Klan is going to be stopped is if you and I organize and stop them ourselves. That, that will stop it. You may say, well, what have I... Why am I so down on the Klan all of a sudden? And I'm going to tell you why. And why did I shift my attack from the black Muslims, Elijah Muhammad and his immoral self, to uh, the Klan? Yes, he's immoral. You can't, you can't take nine teenage women and seduce them and give them babies and not tell me you're, and then, then, then tell me you're moral. You could do it if you admitted you did it and admitted that the babies were yours, I'd shake your hand and call you a man. A good one, too. <laughs> but any time you seduce teenage girls and make them be charged with adultery, make them hide your crime, why, you're not even a man, much less a, di a divine man. <laughs> so, uh, and, and, and this is what he did. He took, he took at least nine that we know about. And I'm not speculating because he told this to me himself. Yes, that's why he wanted me dead, because he knew that as soon as I woke up, I'd tell it. Nine of them, not, not two of them that are suing him, but nine of them. And the FBI knows it, the law in Chicago knows it, the press even knows it, and they won't expose the man. And, and, I'll, and you, don't let me get off of here tonight without telling you why they won't expose it, why they're afraid to expose it. They know that if they expose him, that he has the most, that, see the black Muslim movement, it was organized in such a way that it attracted the most militant, the most uncompromising, the most fearless and the youngest of the black people in the United States. That's who went into it. Those who didn't mind dying, they didn't mind making a sacrifice. All they were interested in was freedom and justice and equality, and they would do anything to see that it was brought about. These are the people who have followed him for the past 12 years, and the government knows it. But all of these ultra-militants have been held in check in an organization that doesn't take an active part in anything, and therefore it cannot be a threat to the movement again from January 1961 because most of the action that Muslims got involved in was action that I was involved in myself. Wherever it happened in the country, where there was some action, it was action that I was involved in because I believed in action. I never have gone along with no Ku Klux Klan. Or, and another one that he had made a deal with was this man Rockwell. Rockwell and Elijah Muhammad are regular correspondents with each other. You can hate me for telling you this, but I'm going to tell it to you. Rockwell attended the rallies because Elijah Muhammad put the OK on it. And Sharif, the captain of the FOI, and I had discussed it. 
wondering why Rockwell could come to our meetings because until Elijah Muhammad and the black Muslim movement were to crumble, that all of those militants who formerly were in it and held in check would immediately become involved in the civil rights struggle and they would add the same kind of energy to the civil rights struggle that they gave to the black Muslim movement. And there's a great fear, you know yourself, white people don't like for black people to get involved in anything to do with civil rights unless those black people are nonviolent, loving, patient, forgiving, and all of that. They don't like for them to. And there has been a conspiracy across the country on the part of many factions of the press to suppress news that would open the eyes of the Muslims who are following Elijah Muhammad. They continue to make him look like he's a prophet somewhere who is getting some messages direct from God and is untouchable and things of that sort. I'm telling you the truth. But they do know that if, they, if something were to happen and all these brothers, were, were, their eyes came, were to come open, they would be right out here in every one of these civil rights organizations making these Uncle Tom Negro leaders stand up and fight like men instead of running around here nonviolently acting like women. So they hope that Elijah Muhammad remains as he is for a long time because they know that any organization that he heads, it will not do anything in the struggle that the black man is confronted with in this country. Proof of which, look how violent they can get. They were violent, they've been violent from coast to coast. Muslims in the Muslim movement have been involved in cold, calculated violence. And not at one time have they been involved in any violence against the Ku Klux Klan. They, they're capable, they're qualified, they're equipped, they know how to do it but they'll never do it only to another brother. Now, I am well aware of what I'm setting in motion by what I'm saying up here tonight. I'm well aware, but I have never said or done anything in my life that I wasn't prepared to suffer the consequences for. Now, what does this have to do with France, England, and the United States? You and I are living at a time when there's a revolution going on, a worldwide revolution. It goes beyond Mississippi. It goes beyond Alabama. It goes beyond Harlem. There's a worldwide revolution going on, and it's in two phases. Number one, what is it revolting against? The power structure. The American power structure? No. The French power structure? No. The English power structure? No. Then what power structure? An international Western power structure. Uh, an international power structure consisting of American interests. But as the African nation, we became proud of it. And when became proud of it, we began to have something with it. But journey was to Mecca to make myself an authentic Muslim and to bring them there up to date on the problems that our people who are Muslims have. Soon as we establish our religious authenticity with the Muslim world, we set up the organization of Afro-American unity and, and took immediate steps to make certain that we would be in direct contact with our African brothers on the African continent. So the first step that has been taken, brothers and sisters, since Gavi died, to actually establish contact between the 22 million, America, uh, the 22 million black Americans 
with our brothers and sisters back home was done by two organizations. Done first by the Muslim mosque, uh, which gave us direct ties with our brothers and sisters in Asia and Africa who are Muslims. And you know we've got to unite with them because there are 700 million Muslims. And we sure need to stop being the minority and become part of the majority. So, as Muslims, we united with our Muslim brothers in Asia and Africa. And as uh, members of the Organization of African or Afro-American Unity, we uh, set out on a program to unite our people on this continent with our people on the mother continent. And this frightened many power, many interests in this country. Many people in this country who want to see us the minority and who don't want to see us taking too militant or too uncompromising a stand are absolutely against the successful uh, regrouping or organizing of any faction in this country whose thought and whose thinking pattern is international rather than national, whose, th whose thought pattern, whose hopes and aspirations are worldly rather than, than just within the context of the, Amer of the United States border or the borderline of the United States. So this has been the purpose of the OAAU and also the Muslim mosque, to give us direct links, direct contacts, direct communication and cooperation with our brothers and sisters all over the earth. And once we are successful in uniting ourselves with our people all over the world, it puts us in a position where we no longer are a minority who can be abused and walked upon. We become a part of the majority. And then if this man over here plays too rough, we got some brothers who can play as rough as he. So that's all I have to say about that. I wanted you to know that my house was bombed. It was bombed by the black Muslim movement upon the orders of Elijah Muhammad. And when, and when the bomb was thrown, one of the bombs were thrown at the rear window of my house where my three little baby girls sleep. And I have no compassion or mercy or forgiveness or anything of that sort for anyone who attacks children. If you attack me, that's one thing. I know what to do when you start attacking me. But when you attack sleeping babies while you are lower than a guy... The only thing that I regret in all of this is that two black groups have to fight and kill each other off. Elijah Muhammad could stop the whole thing tomorrow just by raising his hand. Really, he could. He could stop the whole thing by raising his hand. But he won't. He doesn't love black people. He doesn't even love his own followers, from of which they're killing each other. They killed one in the brown. They shot another one in the brown. They tried to get six of us uh, uh, Sunday morning, and uh, the pattern has developed across the country. The man has gone insane, absolutely out of his mind. Besides, you can't be 70 years old and surround yourself by a handful of 16, 17, 18-year-old girls and keep your right mind. You can't do it. So from tonight on, there'll be a hot time in the old town.
with regret, with great regret. There's no organization in this country that could do more for the struggling black man than the black Muslim movement if it wanted to. But it has gotten into the possession of a man who's got become senile in his old age and perhaps doesn't realize it. And then he has surrounded himself by his children who are now in power and want nothing but luxury and security and comfort and will do anything to safeguard their own interests. So uh, I feel responsible for having played a major role in developing a criminal organization. It, it, it was not a criminal organization at the outstart. It was an organization that had the power, the spiritual power, to reform the criminal. And, and this is what you have to understand. As long as that strong spiritual power was in the movement, it gave the, it gave the moral strength to the believer that would enable him to rise above all his negative tendencies. I know, because I, I, I went into the movement with more negative tendencies for the betterment of the community by any means necessary. And since, since tonight we had to get into this old nasty negative subject, we didn't want to bring up our program. We're going to have... You mentioned I mentioned the conspiracy between the Muslims and the right wing in this country. I know for a fact that there is a conspiracy between, among, between the Muslims and the uh, uh, Lincoln Rockwell Nazi and also the Ku Klux Klan. There is a conspiracy. Well, the Ku Klux Klan made a deal, or were trying to make a deal, with Elijah Muhammad in 1960 in the home of Jeremiah X, the minister in Atlanta at that time, who was president of the minister in uh, Philadelphia. They were trying to make a deal with him to make available to Elijah Muhammad a county, a size tract of land in Georgia or South Carolina, where Elijah Muhammad could then uh, induce Negroes to migrate and make it appear that his program of a segregated state or separated state was feasible. And uh, to what extent these negotiations finally developed, I do not know, because I was not involved in them beyond the period of uh, December 19, uh, 1960. But I do know that after that, Jeremiah, who was the minister throughout the South, could roam the entire South and the Klan not bother him in any way, shape, or form, nor would they bother any of the black Muslims from then on, nor would the black Muslims bother the Klan. Are you inferring, then, that because of this conspiracy, the attempt was made upon your life? The attempt could have been made upon my life. Ask that again. Are you inferring that because of this conspiracy, the attempt was made on your life. Not necessarily that conspiracy. The attempt was made upon my life because I speak my mind and I know too much. And they know that I will speak it whether they like it or not. Pardon me? Are you urging your followers to take any action against Muslims? Am I urging my followers to take action against the Muslims? No. No. Uh, am I going to try and infiltrate their organization and win over some of their supporters? No, I have never tried to win supporters from Elijah Muhammad. Since I have left the black Muslim movement, I've spoken at these rallies, those who come, come, those who don't, don't. But I've never gone out of my way 
to win over any of his followers. And he himself is fearful because he knows that you don't have to exercise too much energy to win his followers. As soon as they know truth and compare the two, uh, and by the way, this is the brother, this is, I didn't see you there, brother. This is Leon Amir, who was Cassius Clay's secretary, whom they beat unmercifully up in Boston. And the, the court freed the men who beat him. They fined him $100, was it? Fined him $100. And uh, he was on the inside of the black Muslim uh, specialty squad. And, and I know it. And it was he who heard... Elijah Muhammad Jr. come to New York when Elijah Muhammad was at the armory in June of last year. Junior stood up and told the fruit, many of whom are here now also, that uh, I should have been killed, that my tongue should have been put in an envelope and sent back to Chicago by now. And because Fat Joseph had not done it, they demoted him. He remained captain, but Clarence up in Boston was put over Joseph. And, and Joseph... Uh, Authority was curtailed. And then Clarence, the captain from Boston, and uh, John, the captain from Springfield, came to New York to assassinate me and came to him to get a silencer and couldn't get it. So the, the police know this. It's not something that's new. They just wait until the job is done and then they step in. Yes, now, Elijah Muhammad invited, uh, called all of his officials national officials to Chicago in October and ordered them to kill or maim any of his followers who leave him to follow me. Well, uh, you, when you say, how do I know, many of the brothers who were in at that time are out now. And if this ever come into the court, there are plenty of witnesses who can stand up and testify to it. Pardon? Pardon. I'd rather not say at this time. When you say you know too much, what do you mean? Oh. <laughs> Who's the next one? Give him, give him two more minutes. Give them two more minutes and we'll end it. Yes. Yes. When I said that no one can clean up our home but us, and that we will clean it up, including the and no, and, and, and no one should control it but us, including the politics. What do I mean? I mean exactly that. That the black people. What, you're thinking of who? Powell. Powell. Powell's one of us. No, he's not a member of our organization, but when I say he's one of us, I mean he's one of the family. And, and no one outside the family can get us to talk about him. If we talk about him, we talk about him within the family. But nobody outside the family can instigate us against power. Yes, by, by controlling it politically, I mean that the politics of the community of Harlem should be controlled by those of us who live in Harlem, not by somebody sitting down in Gracie Mansion.
sir? Uh, no, uh, but the organization of Afro-American unity intends to get involved in every kind of action that's going on in New York City. We don't intend to let anybody downtown influence us in any way, shape, or form. We want the influence to come from Harlem and from, and from other Harlems around the country. Now, this doesn't mean we're anti-outside of Harlem. This doesn't mean we're anti-Bronx or anti-White Plains or anti-White or anti-German or anything like that. But it means we're pro-Harlem. We're pro-ourselves. We want to start doing something for ourselves. That's all it means. It means that we, we want to stop begging you for your school. We want you to we, get out of the way and let us straighten out the schools in Harlem. Yes, sir. I, I just answered it when I said from tonight on there'll be a hot town in the hot time in the old town. I answered it when this gentleman over here asked. It's a song that we used to sing. An implication, an implied threat. I never imply any threats to anyone. I'm a Muslim. My religion is Islam. It's a religion of peace and. Sir? Yes, I do believe there'll be further attempts on my life. I know them. They're foaming at the mouth. Uh, the rank-and-file Muslim means well. It's those at the hierarchy who are living off the fatted calf who don't mean well. And uh, this coming Sunday at uh, 2 o'clock, as I say, our, our program will be unfolded. Elijah Muhammad knows he has done some good things and he has done some bad things. Uh, he knows that if he had wanted to, he could have... Uh, united our people with the Muslim world just by teaching the right religion of Islam. He could have done so. The entire Muslim world would have accepted him. As it is now, the Muslim world has rejected him. He can never go into the Muslim world saying that he's a prophet or that Allah came over here in the flesh. They would cut his head off if he said that over there. I mean, he knows this. Uh, none of his followers can go over there without denouncing him. It's impossible for them to go to Mecca or any other place unless they ascribe to Islam as it is ascribed to over there. So he was in a position to unite us with the Muslim world, those of us who are Muslims. He was also in a position to unite us with Africa. But you cannot read anything that Elijah Muhammad has ever written that's pro-African. I defy you to find one word in his direct writing that, that's pro-African. You can't find it. Listen to this question this man asked me. <laughs> what are you trying to get at? No, he asked me, listen, I got to tell him what you asked me. He asked me, don't I think if I got hurt, you know, don't, wouldn't some of my followers retaliate? What are you trying to say? <laughs> or what are you trying to get me to say? I mean, it's okay. I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm not uh, going to get you in any trouble. These are your friends in here. But I, but I just want them to hear what you're asking me. That's all. <laughs> I just want them to hear what you're asking me. You wouldn't get in no trouble in here. Would he? No. Yes, sir. Last question. 
I'm under a civil court order to get out of my house in Queens. You know, I only heard, somebody told me that they heard that on the radio. I know nothing about it. And I haven't discussed it with a lawyer yet, and I won't make any comments until I discuss it with a lawyer. But I just hope that nobody tries to go in there while my, what's left of my belongings are there. Sir? Some have, have been in the vicinity, yes, and some policemen, too, have been nice enough to watch the house ever since it was bombed. I wish they had been watching it while it was bombed. <laughs> yeah, a great deal of the, my personal belongings were lost. They threw four bombs in there. I might point this out, that these who, these who did it were so vicious, and those who did it knew the whole layout of the house. They, uh, and to show you why I believe in Allah, the, the, the uh, bombs that were thrown into the front part of the house were thrown directly against the window, you know, so they came through. But before they threw the first one, uh, the neighbor saw someone go up to the window with a mop-like uh, instrument and break the window, crack the glass. And then they threw the bombs in after the glass was broken. And that was in the front part. Now they had come around, to, they had planned to do it from the front and the back so that I couldn't get out. They had, they, they covered the front completely, the front door, then they had come to the back, but instead of getting in directly in the back of the house and throwing it this way, they stood at a 45 degree angle and tossed it at the window so it, it glanced and went onto the ground. And the, the fire hit the window and it woke up my second oldest baby. Uh, and then it, but the fire burned on the outside of the house. But had that fire, had that one gone through that window, it would have fallen on a six-year-old girl, a four-year-old girl, and a two-year-old girl. And I'm going to tell you, if it had done it, I'd taken my rifle and gone after anybody in sight. I would not wait. Cause in the, and I say that because of this. The police know the criminal operation of the black Muslim movement because they have thoroughly infiltrated it. ...that the, that the uh, city police don't know about. Because they have policemen in there. They don't let black people form anything without some policemen in there. And while I was in the black Muslim movement, over the black Muslim movement, many of the police who were sent to infiltrate us, they're black, would tell me, say, look, I'm a cop, but I have to come. They would tell me. I knew the, 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 the Muslim movement was full of police. So don't you think anything is going down that they don't know about? The only thing that goes down is what they want to go down. And what they don't want to go down, they don't let it go down. One last question. Yes, sir. Muslims claim that you bomb your own house. That's what I said. The Muslims claim I bomb my house. Yeah, no, well, you can take what you want. The, the Asin squad, the fire marshal, all of them are experts in uh, this kind of thing. And if anybody can find where I bomb my house, they can put a rifle bullet through my head. It was my children and my own life and my wife's life that was at stake. In fact, let me tell you something, sir. I stood uh, Sunday morning, you know what the degree, what temperature was, it was about 15 or 20. I stood in my underwear, bare feet, in the middle of my driveway with a gun in my hand for 45 minutes waiting for the police or waiting for the fire department to come. If I want to put on a show, I can find a better way than that to put it on. That's all. There's a...
Uh, brothers and sisters, there's, um, here's the Standard Evening Post, dated February the 27th, 1965. And in it, there's a, an article titled, An Ex-Official Tells Why the Black Muslims Are a Fraud. Right. This is one of the brothers in Boston who was, who was formerly the secretary up there and who is the cousin of Ronald Stokes, the brother who was killed out in California in April of 1962. And I would like to say this before anything else, and that is, don't think that I don't know how bad I make myself look by attacking an organization that I was once so inseparably a part of. But I'm not particularly concerned with how bad it makes me look. My prime concern is to expose it to the fullest of my ability let the chips fall where they may. And if the black Muslim movement says that I'm wrong in what I say, then I say, since they are so well qualified and equipped, let them attack the Klan. Let them go find out, let them get the persons who bombed that church in, in Birmingham. Because I'll go get them. I'll go and attack the Klan and attack Rockwell and any of the others. And I defy them to do so. They can't do it because they both have the same paymaster. So now our question period. And you have to stand up because I can't see beyond this man's light. And I am appealing to you and the rest of us here who have problems and our concern at heart. What can we do and what must we do to avoid something else like this? This is what I meant earlier when I said concerning the importance of our controlling Harlem. As long as we have outsiders running our hospitals and our schools and our everything else, they will run us right on out of, the, right on out of existence. I would suggest that you come over to the office and see what we can get our heads together on and see what we can do. Anything I can do, I certainly will, and I know all the brothers and sisters will. Tell these white. No, I shake his hand if he's all right. But first, he's got to get all right. <laughs> the, the standard of judgment by, from a Muslim is behavior. Welcome back, and uh, that was uh, an address, uh, an emergency address and an emergency press conference uh, delivered uh, by Malcolm X at the Audubon Ballroom on the evening of Monday, February 15, 1965, uh, just six days prior to his assassination. And uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast, and uh, we've been... Uh, re-examining uh, the assassination of uh, Malcolm X, uh, which took place on February 21st of 1965. And uh, this, of course, uh, is in light of uh, the exon legal exoneration of uh, two of the people who were convicted of uh, the assassination um, in uh, 1965. And, of course, in order to cover up the actual conspiracy uh, behind uh, the assassination of Malcolm X. This cover-up uh, took place. 
And uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, worldwide uh, radio broadcast. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. And uh, today is uh, Saturday, November the 20th, 2021. And uh, we're broadcasting live from our studios in uh, downtown Detroit. And I'd like to thank all of our listeners for uh, tuning in uh, once again uh, to yet another edition of our program. And uh, we're going to take a musical break, and uh, we'll be back uh, with more of our program. In fact, our concluding segment program. We'll be back. on the continent and indeed uh, throughout the international community. Let's listen in.
This is CGTN, China Global Television Network. Hello and welcome to the world today. I'm Richard Ntai, Nairobi. Here's what's ahead. The U.S. Secretary of Defense vows to counter Iran's nuclear deal. Several people are injured in the Netherlands as police fire warning shots during protests against proposed COVID restrictions. And anger, disappointment, and relief as Kyle Rittenhouse is acquitted of all charges in the U.S. Once again, welcome to the world today. Let's begin with Iran nuclear, the U.S. on Iran nuclear. The United States defense chief has vowed to prevent Iran from obtaining nuclear weapons. Lloyd Austin is in Bahrain reassuring Middle East allies of the Biden administration's commitments. The U.S. defense secretary made the comments at the annual Manama dialogue on Saturday as the Biden administration tries to revive the nuclear deal which limited Iran's enrichment of uranium in exchange for the limiting lifting of economic sanctions. The United States remains committed to preventing Iran from gaining a nuclear weapon. And we remain committed to a, a diplomatic outcome of the nuclear issue. But if Iran isn't willing to engage seriously, then we will look at all the options necessary to keep the United States secure. Afghanistan's acting foreign minister, Amir Khan Mutaki, has told China Media Group that the newly established interim government has been making efforts to ensure the safety and stability of the country, as well as to improve the domestic economy and livelihood. Mutaki also said he was looking forward to the elevation of trade with China. Meanwhile, he called for the unfreezing of assets to prevent an economic crisis. We have discussed with many countries, including the United States, the issue of unfreezing Afghan assets. At the conference held in Islamabad, we also carried out in-depth exchanges with the participating countries. The U.S. was there, and we touched on the issue again. Those assets belong to the Afghan people and must be released as soon as possible. I have told the U.S. that we are not in a military confrontation. Since the Doha deal was signed, the Taliban have done nothing inappropriate. Why does the U.S. still freeze our assets? No reason at all. The money is not going to the Taliban, but will become the wealth of Afghan banks. It is good for the Afghan economy, and it can bring benefits to the Afghan people. We have been working hard to resolve this issue. Washington says it's holding the second session of an economic dialogue with Taiwan next week. Talks will focus on a so-called free trade deal. The announcement comes just days after a virtual summit between the top leaders of China and the United States. Chinese President Xi Jinping warned of resolute measures if supporters of Taiwan's independence cross the red line. The U.S. has ramped up official engagement since Donald Trump was in office. And Beijing has repeatedly urged Washington to respect the, quote, one China principle, close quote. Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi says China will absolutely not tolerate any moves for Taiwan independence that aim to separate the country. He was speaking at the Global Town Hall, an international discussion of current affairs via video on Saturday. 
Wang says there is one China in the world and Taiwan is part of it. He adds that China will never accept any attempt to create two Chinas or one China, one Taiwan in the world. Wang says China will strive for the prospect of peaceful reunification with utmost efforts. And he says the more unequivocal the opposition against Taiwan independence is, the more hopeful of a peaceful reunification and the more guaranteed to peace and prosperity in Asia and the Pacific. A closely watched trial in the United States is over. Kyle Rittenhouse was cleared of all charges, including homicide. The Illinois teenager shot and killed two people and wounded a third during protests against racial injustice in the state of Wisconsin last year. As Isabel Rosales reports, the verdict is likely to further deepen tensions. We, the jury, find the defendant, Kyle H. Rittenhouse, not guilty. Kyle Rittenhouse found not guilty on all charges by a jury in Kenosha, Wisconsin. The verdict, coming after roughly 25 hours of deliberation by the panel of five men and seven women. Rittenhouse was accused of first-degree intentional homicide and four other felony charges. The shooting came in the wake of unrest in Kenosha following the police shooting of Jacob Blake, a 29-year-old black man. Rittenhouse traveled to Kenosha and was given an AR-15-style rifle by a friend. After a crowd pursued him, he shot three people, killing Joseph Rosenbaum and Anthony Huber and injuring Gage Grosskreutz. He also shot at an unidentified man who kicked him and tried to flee. Rittenhouse claims self-defense. I didn't do anything wrong. I defended myself. The prosecution called 22 witnesses, hoping to show that Rittenhouse provoked those around him, leading to the shooting. Defense attorneys arguing that Rittenhouse was under attack and had no other choice in order to save his own life. What's wrong with this system? In Kenosha, Wisconsin, I'm Isabel Rosales. Both Rittenhouse's defense attorney and the uncle of Jacob Blake, whose shooting by police sparked riots in Kenosha last year, reacted to the verdict outside the courthouse. African Americans got an uncashed check out there. We deserve the respect of this country. We deserve to walk the streets of this country. We deserve to march and rally peacefully without having our supporters murdered in the streets. He has a huge sense of relief for what the jury did to him today. Um, he wishes none of this would have ever happened. But as he said when he testified, he did not start this. The United Nations has warned that more than 2 million people in Somalia are experiencing hunger. UN spokesperson Stephanie Dujarich says serious water, food, and pasture shortages are affecting 18% of the population in the Horn of Africa nation. The situation has currently displaced at least 100,000 people in search of these basic necessities. UN officials warn a severe storm is brewing in Somalia. There's also a looming danger for waterborne diseases due to poor water safety and potability. The humanitarian body projects that the number of those who need assistance and protection could rise by 30 percent in 2022. And this comes at a time experts are warning of climate change extremes. Somalia is prone to dryness and sparse rainfall and has experienced at least 30 climate disasters within a span of 20 years. A protest over COVID-19 measures in the Netherlands turned violent. Police fired warning shots and used water cannons and demonstrators on demonstrators in Rotterdam on Friday. Several people were injured. Police issued an emergency ordinance and shut down public transportation. 
Hundreds were demonstrating against a plan to restrict access to indoor venues for people who have been vaccinated or tested negative. The country has been has seen a record number of infections in recent days and reimposed some restrictions a week ago. A record wave of COVID cases is sparking strict measures in Austria with a full national lockdown set to return on Monday. It will also be the first European country to make vaccinations mandatory. Other nations may follow suit, including Germany, which says it's facing a national emergency. Ryan Thompson has more from Frankfurt. To get a handle on a severe fourth wave of COVID-19, vaccinations against the virus will become mandatory come February. And that's a sharp response in a nation which has some of the lowest vaccination uptake for the COVID-19 shot in all of Europe. Only about 64% of eligible adults have chosen to get fully vaccinated against the virus. We have seen that number tick up slightly higher since Monday when the unvaccinated portion of the population was put under a special lockdown. But that has not really moved the margins much. And come Monday, that is all set to change because the entire country will enter a full head-on lockdown. And this is one of those strict European lockdowns where public life really grinds to a halt. Restaurants, shops, hairdressers, all of these services are closed. People are expected to stay at home. The government saying the lockdown will be a minimum of 10 days, but could be as long as 20 days, meaning that people will be at home for three weeks, really, in the lead-up to the holidays. Overall, the COVID-19 situation in Europe is becoming quite severe. We are smashing records, and not in a good way, in terms of a number of new infections being reported each day. Uh, here in Germany, the situation has become incredibly severe, and the government is warning that it's becoming an emergency situation where they are likely having to act very, very soon in a severe capacity. Uh, many people think that this nation soon will go into lockdown as well, similar to the way it was uh, for many, many months in the beginning portion of the year. On Thursday, the parliament voted on new measures to really adopt the country's COVID laws into this new era because they did know that they need to act fast. You will soon, if you're living in a region where the hospitals are really saturated, they don't have enough of those ICU beds that are so critical for treating COVID patients, well, you might living in one of these regions will have to present not just your COVID-19 vaccination card, but also a negative test result if you wish to go to an establishment like a bar or like a restaurant. On top of that, we're seeing a very, very interesting move by the government, which is now banning people who have not been vaccinated from public transportation if they can't prove that they're not carrying the virus. Overall, the country and Europe as a whole is headed for some tricky, tricky weeks that lie ahead. People are going inside, the weather is getting colder, and the festive season is upon us. People will be traveling, people will be greeting their family, and it will be a complex couple of weeks as they try to get a handle on what is becoming an increasingly dangerous situation here. Ryan Thompson, CGTN, Frankfurt. Newly released footage shows a teenager with his hands up when police opened fire last year in Pennsylvania. Viewer discretion is advised. 19-year-old Christian Hall was suffering from a mental crisis and holding a gun when he was shot and killed by police after a nearly two-hour standoff. Officers had responded to reports of a suicidal man on a bridge and tried to persuade him to get down. The original police video blurred the final moments of Hall's life. But the new footage reveals a teenager 
had his hands above his head while still holding a gun in one hand as troopers fired a series of shots. Also in Pennsylvania, an attack against Asian students has gone viral on social media. The images you are about to see may be disturbing. Police say four Asian students were attacked by four girls on a Philadelphia train Wednesday afternoon, pushing and kicking a female victim. Officers say the attack was unprovoked and the suspects used ethnic slurs and mocked them for their heritage. Four black teenage girls have been arrested and charged with ethnic intimidation and aggravated assault. The attack sparked concerns about safety on public transportation, with the mayor saying he was appalled by the violence. Well, that's it for this edition of The World Today. I'll be back shortly with more news from the continent in Africa Live. Thanks for watching. Stay with us. GTN, China Global Television Network. The latest from Ethiopia as the AU Special Envoy seeks meetings with rival sides to the conflict in the north. U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken heads to Senegal on a charm offensive on the last leg of Africa tour. And as the world marks Children's Day, we bring you a special report on the plight of juvenile offenders in Kenya. 
Welcome to Africa Live. Great to have you along with me for this hour. Let's begin in Ethiopia where the push for a ceasefire continues. African Union Special Envoy Lushagon Obasanjo concluded meetings on Friday with representatives of the TPLF rebel group. Obasanjo is this weekend expected to meet with Ethiopian Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed before briefing ambassadors on the progress of the mediation efforts. Meanwhile, the United Nations says another staff member was detained in Ethiopia yesterday, bringing the number of its staff in custody to five alongside two of their dependents. Our correspondent, Groom Chala, is keeping an eye on these developments, and he joins us live now from Addis Groom. Welcome to Africa Live. Thank you for taking time to speak to us. Groom, the AU Special Envoy's schedule for this weekend includes an expected meeting with the Ethiopian Prime Minister as well as ambassadors in Addis Ababa. What's the latest over there? Thank you, Richard. Only thank you, Ambassador Special Envoy for the African Union for the Eastern Africa region and particularly here in Ethiopia. Uh, he has been here for the last uh, couple of days. Uh, he went to Mekele for his second round of meeting with TPLF leadership and the much anticipated meeting is with uh, Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed and after that uh, his briefing uh, for ambassadors, especially the African Union ambassadors based here in Addis Ababa. As you know, uh, the plan uh, for him is to present his ideas as to how to go about the roundtable discussions if and if they will, uh, if they will uh, happen in the next perhaps uh, two weeks time, that's the contemplation. People here have and experts are also saying. So uh, the Prime Minister is expected to hear what uh, Mr. Obasanjo has to say. As you remember, he's been to Mekele once uh, before and then he had a discussion with the Prime Minister as well. And then he uh, had uh, also a planned uh, discussion with the U.S. Uh, envoy at the same time, Jeffrey Feltzman, that is. So Olisengo Obasanjo is now expected to deliver his plan for the would-be negotiations if they're going to happen. So uh, still we don't know uh, exactly, Richard, what's, uh, what is coming out of that meeting with the Prime Minister. Perhaps it's happening uh, at, the, at the moment uh, as well. But the briefing for the Prime Ministers, uh, for the uh, ambassadors based in Addis Ababa, is uh, perhaps scheduled for tonight or tomorrow morning. All right, speaking of meetings, what, are, what do we know about the outcomes of the meeting between the AU envoy and the TPLF on Friday? So, Olisego uh, Basanjo went to Mekele. This is the second time, as I said, uh, on Friday. He had a discussion with uh, TPLF leadership, uh, top leadership, starting from Devres Ngabri Mikael. He's the head of TPLF, uh, was the regional leadership at the same time, and then uh, others at the same time, the spokesperson, Getacha Reda, included. Uh, this discussion, uh, as I was saying earlier, is intended to find out what a TPLF is thinking as to how this uh, roundtable discussion should go. And if there are preconditions, what are, what are they saying about it? Uh, after that, uh, what, that, what we have heard uh, from the TPLF leadership is that uh, TPLF wants uh, some territories to be, um, uh, re I mean, re uh, to be ev evacuated, soldiers who, who are holding the areas uh, that is a TPLF uh, leadership area. Welcome back. And uh, that's going to conclude uh, our program for this week. And... Um, You've been listening to the Pan-African Journal, a worldwide uh, radio broadcast uh, for Saturday, uh, November 20th, uh, 2021. Uh, we've been broadcasting live from our studios in uh, downtown Detroit. And I would like to thank all of our listeners 
for tuning in uh, once again uh, to yet another edition of uh, the Pan-African Journal. And uh, we're going to close out uh, with uh, the music of John Coltrane and Paul Quinochet uh, from the 1950s, their sessions together. This is Abayomi Azikawe signing off, and have a beautiful week. Thank you.